Al Jazeera podcast. Hi, Malika here. As 2023 wraps up, we're reviewing some of the stories that defined our year. Among them were the devastating earthquakes that killed more than 50,000 people in Turkey and Syria in February. It was a story we've gone back to a few times, but we're resharing an episode we did focusing on the impact the disaster had on one Turkish city in particular, Antakya, which is still struggling to rebuild. So here's our episode from February 17th. A note, none of the dates or other references have changed. When we talked to Emre Rende, a journalist, he'd just gotten off the phone with his family in southern Turkey. It was a week and a day after the region was struck by two massive earthquakes. He had news, and it wasn't good news. People have been pulled out of the rubble today. Oh, wow. Others have been buried, buried today. Since those earthquakes, tens of thousands are dead without proper burials and more than a million are homeless. One Turkish rescuer told us that this phase of the disaster is coming to an end. We are a lot closer to the end of it than the beginning. Then it'll be a recovery phase, the recovery of the deceased. But some of Turkey's most valued treasures, ancient cities, architectural history, and people, are gone. Emre is from one of those cities. I am from Antakya. That is my hometown, a city that has been completely destroyed. So what happened to Antakya? And is Turkey ready for what's next? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name is Emre Rende. I'm a journalist and a photographer based in Istanbul and Doha. And we used to be colleagues at Al Jazeera. Yeah, I was a news editor in the newsroom. Emre's moved on to new assignments, but they continue to take him all around the world. I'm currently working a field assignment in Japan where people are extremely worried about this earthquake. They've gone through so many of them as well. But the reason we're talking to him today isn't because of his world travels. It's because of his roots in Antakya, known as Antioch in ancient times. It's one of the most historic cities in Turkey. In Antakya, most of the city of 400,000 has been destroyed. And it's the place Emre calls home. It's where my grandmother was from. Um, It's very close to the Syrian border. Uh, Many people are saying that Antakya is no more. Tell me about Antakya as you remember it. Antakya, for us, growing up, summer in Antakya was something that we would always look forward to. Being able to walk barefoot on the streets, learning to play backgammon, learning to drive, these things. It's a very pivotal moments of your life, it sounds like. It was very pivotal because it was simple village life, nature, cousins, kids, Everywhere, cousins everywhere. The tea and then, you know, the kunefe, which the city is, of course, famous for. 
It was a real a sense of happiness and freedom. It was every night we would gather under the vines in the garden, uh, tea and chit chat until the very early hours of the morning, all under the leadership of my grandmother, who, by the way, didn't speak Turkish. She only spoke Arabic. So it's also an Arabic speaking part of the country, Arabic and Turkish speaking part of the country. It used to be a part of greater Syria. Yes. My father, when we were growing up, always used to say, you know, Antioch was one of the most important cities of the Roman Empire. The Caesars decided to make it the capital of the eastern part of their territory. The Romans fell in love with Antioch. It used to be a world city, maybe not in its modern day, but it, it was once upon a time when the population of Antioch was 100,000. London was still a village. There's layers and layers and layers of history where Islam in many of its forms, Christianity in various forms, Judaism have always coexisted. Antakya was not just important in world history, but you know, for us personally, it meant everything. Of course. What do you remember about Monday, February 6th? I, I remember waking up and seeing the breaking news. In southern Turkey, buildings crumble like sand. Wondering why I hadn't been woken up yet and calling my dad. Obliterated by some of the worst earthquakes in a century. I said, are, are you watching? What, are, you, are you aware of what's going on? And he was in Istanbul. The first struck before dawn as the country slept. That morning, never in a million years would I have thought that a thousand-year-old central mosque would be gone. What people are calling now the end of a city, the end of a civilization, that was really not apparent that morning. Bernard Smith, one of Al Jazeera's correspondents, had been to Antakya many times, covering the region at the height of Syria's civil war. He managed to book a flight to southern Turkey the night of the earthquake and woke up the next day to a new disaster. Suddenly you see on the highways, there's cracks in the highway, and then you see on these buildings are just collapsed all around you, all around. Some still standing, but all around you are are buildings that have just crumbled. So much death, unhappiness and sadness and whole lives ripped apart in a couple of minutes, whole whole families destroyed. My cousin and my brother-in-law are in here. We've been waiting for three days. Today they rescued a girl and her mother. Yesterday they found the bodies of three people. Our pain is great. I can't express it enough. There's nobody I've met in the last week who's not lost somebody, usually many members of a family, in one fell swoop. The scale of this is so hard to describe unless you've been down here. You took 12 million people, an area of 12 million people, have been affected by this earthquake, which is an astonishing number of people. A million, more than a million homeless after two minutes. As for Antakya, a city he once knew so well, it was almost unrecognizable. 
you end up using Google Street View to show you where you are, and then you can sort of work out where you are. It's, it's gone. It was a great city, great food, great heritage, an extraordinary heritage, and it's gone. Meanwhile, for Emre, so far away, trying to find out what had happened to his family was almost impossible. The following hours and the following days, we were not able to reach family members. And when social media started showing footage of certain neighborhoods of the city that no longer exist, many of my family members lived in some of these neighborhoods. So the panic was to immediately try to reach uncles, aunts, and cousins. Of course, the more we tried to reach people, everybody was trying to reach people. None of the phone lines were working. My cousins who live abroad, they, of course, were in total panic, unable to reach their parents. So they started calling us. Have you heard from my mom? Have you heard from my mom? We couldn't reach my uncle Sharif. We couldn't reach another uncle. And we knew that they lived in that neighborhood. Total panic and chaos. And it's winter. So they're also waiting in sometimes snow, sometimes freezing cold. There's no water, no electricity, and no heating, and nothing. People who know their people buried, they can't reach them, waited next to the buildings next to the rubble. I think in some places it took 48 hours. It's a very conservative estimate. I think people are saying that it's a lot more for the first emergency services to arrive. What happened when those first emergency services did arrive? That's after the break. Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI. And I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. We've been talking to Emre Rende about his hometown Antakya, which was devastated by Turkey's recent earthquakes. We also got in touch with one of the search and rescue teams who first arrived there. I'm uh, Bela Tashdemir for Akut's Search and Rescue Association. We are the largest and first search and rescue NGO in Turkey. Belit is Turkish, but he grew up abroad. He works in the UK, but left to come to Turkey after the disaster. Of these cities, Gaziantep and Adana, I had visited before, but Marash and Antakya, I had not visited before. It was the night of February 6th in Antakya when Belit first arrived. You could see that you know, as you drive by, it, it, it almost feels like a post-apocalyptic movie and where you have miles of a major city in, in just darkness. And people are just uh, trying to survive and stay warm with makeshift fires, burning stuff, tents made out of bags. It was really, really cold. 
Many family members of the buried couldn't wait for the construction crews or rescuers. People are going at it with their bare hands. They're literally digging for their loved ones, Bellet says, trying to rescue them. They have no choice. They have no choice. They're emotionally desperate. Rescue teams haven't shown up yet for whatever reason. Sometimes you'll see people, if they see like a, a hardware store a few, few streets over, what's been seen to happen is people will write notes and say, I'm so-and-so, I've broken into your hardware store, and I'm borrowing X, Y, and Z equipment because there is no, what else is going to use. And Bellet says it's these family members, hoping to find someone alive, who have helped his team locate signs of life. But this whole process is a delicate balance. You need to get the heavy lifting in there so you want excavators to pull off some of the floors. But you also don't want to disturb the deceased because their families are waiting too. And rightfully, they expect the bodies to be treated in a dignified manner and as they should be. But there are also live victims on the same site. So it's a balancing act and the clock is ticking. And the families are right there, Bellet says, as the teams work. They ask questions, but they also just watch. For one second, you know, a body comes out and it's the end of the world. And then they hear word that someone just might come alive and then they all light up. Bellet remembers one building where the team thought they heard voices. But then we sent in a technical search team where they would listen in uh, with devices that magnify the smallest sound. Uh, but uh, it was just silent. Um, and we did it twice uh, because sometimes they might go tired or they might sleep. But not that time. And so we move on. Emery was going through that same emotional roller coaster, but on the other end of the phone. He was hearing from his family about cousins they'd heard under the rubble. You could hear them at the beginning, and you could hear them, and it was a family of five distant cousins. I made a plea, we made a plea, we finally sent emergency services there, but not on time. So then the voices stopped. And that's a whole family of uh, Rendes and of my family. They're gone. I'm very sorry to hear that. But many members of Emre's family did survive. We managed to reach my aunt, who confirmed there were no casualties in the immediate family. But there was more to come. And one by one, in the coming day or day and a half, one by one, an uncle here, an aunt there, a cousin here, a cousin there. There was, of course, everybody was in tears and everybody was in a deep state of shock. You know, the destruction says it all. So it's been more than a week now, and I know there must be new concerns. What were they telling you this morning before our interview? I just spoke to my uncle. He says that some family members have not been able to be recovered, who are still believed to be under the rubble. Some have been out from the rubble, not alive, obviously. And others whose funerals have taken place. I'm so sorry. So very quickly, mourning started. And then they start realizing that they're extremely cold and haven't changed clothes or haven't been able to take a bath. We tried to get family members out, but they were not willing. I think the shock was too deep. 
Finally, my aunt was in a bus that got robbed. And I think that was the thing that really kind of pushed her to the edge. And she said, I I'm leaving. And my uncle's grandchildren, the twins, started saying things like, Grandpa, are we going to die? Are we going to die in an earthquake? Mm. How do we know there's not going to be an earthquake? How do we know we're not going to die? And then finally, they decided that, okay, we can't, we can't stay here. They've also left. And now there's an exodus. Where are they going? You go to where family is. So they've gone to Ankara. They've gone to Istanbul. And they've left unwillingly. But they've come to realize that it's going to be very difficult to stay. Bernard's seen many other families are leaving too. And the streets are emptying, he says. You can see the bus stations packed in a couple of the cities because there's nowhere to stay. Even the buildings standing have got to be inspected before you can let people back into them. The survivors have either left or, uh, or, the, or the people who've been killed. And what's left, Emre says, are emotions. There's a deep state of shock, anger, sadness, disbelief, desperation. Who is the anger at right now? There's anger towards emergency services and anger towards the government for not having been able to reach certain places on time. There's anger directed at the fact that the army was not mobilized. NATO's second largest army were extremely competent at these large-scale rescue operations. There's anger towards Syrians. Crime and rioting and, uh, and looting has been a very serious problem in the last week. Uh, and that has come with an extra layer of disgusting racism towards Syrians. Syrians left homeless by the earthquake say they have been kicked out of emergency camps. It was a shelter for all people. And suddenly at 2 a.m., they kicked us out. And now there's a counter-reaction, people saying, don't be racist. Anger is directed at these developers, at the real estate developers. But these buildings should not have risen in the first place. So I'm not going to get into the politics of all of this, but you know, there's also a lot of anger at how these buildings were allowed to be built, not according to regulation. And this is hard for every Turkish person, Emre says. I've never seen the country so broken. My friends from Istanbul, my friends from Ankara, my friends from Izmir, they are inconsolable. They are so upset. They are so angry. They're constantly messaging me. What can we do? Please, we want to help. I'm 42 now, and I'm, you know, I'm having gone through everything that we've gone through, wars, coup attempts, terrorist attacks, airport attacks, I have never, ever seen Turkish people come together this much. The shock throughout the country is very, very real, and it's extremely deep, and people have come to a halt, and many are finding it very difficult to operate again. But Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, is promising to rebuild soon. 
We will quickly begin debris removal and reconstruction activities. We are making plans to reconstruct hundreds of thousands of houses with their infrastructure and superstructure. Or more precisely, to rebuild our cities that suffered massive destruction in the earthquake. In a few weeks, we will begin to take concrete steps. And Balet says the search and rescue phase is coming to a close. The government has made promises that within the next year, there will be a whole swathe of new buildings finished for the victims to move into uh, in these areas. But for that to be able to happen, for the part of the recovery stage is to clear all the rubble. And this is a, a, a truly a mammoth task. One thing that did survive is the house in the country where Emre spent his summers as a boy. So your family members who have left, unwillingly in some cases, do they hope to go back one day? Yeah. People are very emotional about attacking. I just, at this moment, there is absolutely no infrastructure whatsoever. Millions and millions of people have been affected. People who used to have homes, jobs, tea houses that they went to, daily life, daily routine, who will have to migrate west if they can. The dynamics within the country are likely to change. Emre, you spent years working as a journalist, and so you and I both know we really hate to be the story. So after years of covering stories like these, displaced people around the world, what is it like seeing this kind of thing happen at home? It's it's very humbling, and it really drives the point through that we had no idea what we were talking about covering these stories. Not like we underestimated at any point the pain people were going through. People were clearly crying. People were extremely upset. But we clearly still really didn't get it. And we should have done better. And we should have covered things more thoroughly. And we should have asked better questions. We never lacked sympathy. But we should have done better. I'm very sorry that your family is at the center of this story, one of the thousands and thousands of families at the center of this story, and I appreciate you taking the time to tell me about them. No problem at all. I, um, I hope everybody recovers as soon as possible. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Chloe K. Lee, Miranda Lynn, Ashish Malhotra, Nagin Oliai, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Our engagement producers are Andy Greiner and Adam Abugad. Alexander Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs>